Welcome to the talk today. I have a special guest with me. His name is Adam Parsons. He is an assistant strength and conditioning coach on the Olympic side at, uh, at Colorado State University. Um, and I'll kind of let Adam introduce himself, tell you about his journey, how he got there, what other schools he's been to, uh, and all that. So, Adam, take it away. Uh, thanks, Will. Um, and it's been too many schools. So I may not rattle them all off, but I'll, I'll give you a brief outline of uh, kind of my background and what kind of led me to, to finally uh, landing at Colorado State. So I'm actually originally from uh, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I was born in Vancouver, but I was raised um, on Vancouver Island, actually, which is uh, about a two hour ferry ride um, from the harbor in Vancouver. Um, so I'm born and raised in Canada. All my family's in Canada. Don't really have any family in the U.S., obviously, besides my wife now and her um, extended family. But um, the reason I came to the U.S. was to become a, a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, you know, 10 to 13 years ago, it was in its very nascent stages in Canada. Um, a lot of colleges did not have strength coaches. Um, there was a very small kind of private personal training side to strength and conditioning. Um, but I kind of feel like I was about five or six years ahead of my time. So when I was looking for opportunities to be a strength coach, I had to look to the United States, um, to do it. Um, did about two or three internships, um, before I landed my first graduate assistant position. And that was in 2011 at Belmont university, which was in Nashville, Tennessee, um, really great place to kind of cut my teeth, um, had a lot of responsibilities. Um, it was a division one institution, but it was a really small department. It was essentially, uh, the director there and it was myself. So as a graduate assistant, I basically got to operate as a full time with the responsibilities I had. Um, I had quite a few sports. Um, I had quite a few important sports actually, I actually had a baseball team when I was there, which I don't think is as common to have when you're a GA. Um, I had track and field, I had men's tennis, I had men's soccer. Um, so I had a lot of athletes. So I got a lot of really good experience while I was working on my master's degree. Um, after my time there, I finished up in 2013. Um, I started a part-time position at the University of North Dakota, where I actually first met you. I believe you were going into your, um, were you going into your sophomore or junior year? You'll have to remind uh, me. 2013 would have been going into my sophomore Sophomore yeah. year, that fall. Yep, sophomore year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy because you were still strong as heck back then. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of – it was cool following your progress after that. Um, it was pretty incredible what you did both. Not, Appreciate I mean, that. in the weight room, but um, especially on the field too, man. So I, did, I followed you. your I, I followed your career after I left. Um, Thank you. Just, uh, just so you know. Um, but obviously that position, you know, that was a – it was a part-time position. It was still a great experience. Um because at Belmont, we did not have football. So it was a great opportunity to get back into working with the football program. So I got to help out with that. And then I had the swim and uh, track and field programs as well. Um, and again, th those are both great experiences. But unfortunately, as a part-time position, you, uh, it, it's, you, you struggle to pay the bills. So um, eventually, I did find a full-time opportunity just down uh, I-29 at South Dakota State University. Um, and I went there in the November of 2013 and finally just finished up there um, in the late summer last year. Um, my wife got a great opportunity to come out to Fort Collins, Colorado. 
I left to be with her basically. And I didn't have any coaching opportunities in mind. Um, but it seems like if, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, sometimes the Lord provides, um, somebody left the Olympic sports strength and conditioning department here at CSU pretty much around the same time I moved to Fort Collins. Um, I knew a few people on the staff, um, just through common associates. Um, they encouraged me to apply for the position. Um, and yeah, I've been here since, uh, September. Um, and had a really great first year. Um, my responsibilities here, again, it's on the Olympic side, no football. So I work with the uh, softball um, and track and field programs here, minus the distance runners. So I have more of the strength okay. power athletes, your jumpers, spreaders, multis, um, and throwers as well. Um, so that's kind of what I'm working with right now. Awesome. So when you're working with track and field, so you have sprinters, you have throwers, you have jumpers, um, mm -hmm. all anaerobic-based athletes, yep. all power-based athletes. Do you treat them pretty much the same weight room wise, or do you prefer certain methods over other methods with, uh, between the three groups? Um, you know, that's a great question. Um, I will, one of my favorite quotes though, it's a little snarky towards sport coaches, I think. Um, and maybe you've seen it kind of float around Twitter, um, every once in a while. And I, I may not have it exact, but the quote is, um, your sport's not unique. You just think it is. Um, mm -hmm. Now that can be kind of a pretty absolute statement, um, but I think what it's trying to convey is that most athletes in general will benefit from a lot of very similar training and exercises. So, you know, when you come to, if you came to watch me work with my track and field groups or even my softball groups for that matter, or any other group I've worked with in the past, whether it's women's soccer, um, which I have experience with, um, you know, 70 to 80% of the exercises might be similar. Um, my yeah. athletes generally do perform variations of the Olympic lifts. I am a big believer in those. Um, they will perform bilateral and unilateral lower body strength training. Um, you know, wh whether it's bilateral with back squatting, front squatting, um, more hip hinging patterns, RDLs, deadlifts. Um, we're going to push and pull in vertical and horizontal planes. We're going to work on core strength more in a resistant to motion type situation. So what I'm trying to say there is more anti-flexion, anti-extension, anti-lateral flexion, anti-rotation um, type situations. Now with track and field, I don't necessarily do a lot of conditioning um, with them. But again, I do feel like all athletes do benefit from that as well, even if it is an anaerobic based sport. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to get across is there's still most athletes can benefit from good solid general training. And that's about yeah. your, you know, that's about 70 to 80% of it. Now the 20 to 30%, that's where you, you got to get into the weeds a little bit more and make adjustments um, based on what's in front of you. And obviously number one, the demands of the sport and sport practice. Um, I don't think that gets highlighted enough, the importance of preparing somebody for practice. Um, those do come into play. And so obviously with my throwers, you know, they're on more of a four day split type program, almost year round. Um, and then in season we drop off that Friday and they go three days a week in season versus my sprinters and jumpers where maybe, you know, hypertrophy and accumulating that much training volume actually wouldn't be as beneficial to them. So they're more on a three day total body type program. Mm -hmm. And we'll maybe drop that down to two days a week in season. Um, so those are factors. Um, obviously the demands of the sport are your number one, but, 
but you also, and this is something that as you get older as a coach, you learn these other factors are almost just as important in your decision-making. Um, you know, you got to pay attention and you got to respect what your sport coach wants as well. Um, you yeah. do need to work with them. You need to take into consideration their personality, uh, their preferences, and the type of program and schedule that they run um, mm -hmm. and how they do things, especially mm -hmm. with track and field, because a lot of times track and field practice is also another strength and conditioning session in some ways. Yeah. Um, you can have that type of demand on a body versus sometimes other sports, you know, a big chunk of practice can be technical and tactical and it doesn't have the same effect in terms of uh, fatigue um, and breakdown on an athlete. And I'll give you a really specific example. So one thing I had to sort of compromise or adjust was our sprint coach here. Um, we get along really, really well. One thing I wasn't used to is he has very specific expectations as far as if his practice has a certain theme to it, the, the theme of the lift needs to be complementary to that. And I think for a lot of people that makes sense. So for him, you know, he's a big believer in if his practice has an acceleration emphasis. So if he's working on block starts, if he's working on sled sprints, sled drives with his athletes on the track that day, he prefers the lift to reflect that quality as well. And that's where he likes to see some higher intensity, heavier loaded squatting, whether it's front squatting or back squatting, um, Olympic lifting from the floor. Um, he exercises that kind of fit that, you know, higher loads, greater range of motion, um, obviously, you know, more time under tension. And he believes that generally fits acceleration more. And I agree with that. And that's obviously something I've done in the past, but what I needed to adapt to, was he tended to sometimes shuffle his weekly schedule around. And so most times the acceleration emphasis practice occurred on Monday. So generally Monday was our squat day. The kids kind of were used to that. But every once in a while, he would need to make an adjustment due to weather, for example. Um, so if, the week, if that week it looked like they wouldn't be able to do that practice on that day for whatever reason, he'd have to move it to a Wednesday or a Thursday. The lifts would also need to shuffle around with the practices. Um, and I, I struggled with that initially because I was worried if there was kind of an unpredictability to the schedule of when we did these exercises, I was worried it would kind of bring on um, unnecessary kind of soreness and doms. Um, if, some, if, for example, a kid squatted on a Monday and then he didn't get to squat again until that next Friday, um, that was a concern yeah. of mine. But, you know, he had been doing it for a very long time and that's how he ran his program for years. Um, and so, you know, that's something I kind of compromised and adapted to. And to be perfectly honest, um, it, it never caused an issue. Um, yeah. We didn't have any real situations or complaints with that. Um, and it really was important, not just for that, but it was also important to make sure a lift that could be very incongruent to a certain type of practice didn't occur. So obviously he wanted acceleration based lifting or, um, lifts that, fit with acceleration those go together but the other the other situation is he had his sprinters and this is common in sprint programs perform speed endurance type workouts workouts that produce a ton of localized fatigue um, yeah. they like to use the term lactate and you know those practices in the end of those practices look like a war zone you got kids sprawled out spread eagle all over the track um, due to just how much fatiguing byproducts they've produced yeah. because of the type of practice they're doing. Now, in those situations, I don't want a kid to come in and squat after that. So, and they're usually coming in right after practice? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so on those days, that, that would typically be our lightest lift of the week. Um, if we did an Olympic lift, it would be from a position where we're not handling a lot of load. So either potentially cleaning or snatching from the power position. Um, that's also a day where I like to maybe just incorporate a push press or a jerk. Um, be, I, you know, we want to keep the loads and the volumes and the intensity the lightest on that day because the kids just don't have it in them. Mm -hmm. So we try to give them exercises that still challenge them, but through the nature of the exercise um, and the inability to load it for lack of a better term, um, it's still something that they can do that will potentially be beneficial for them, mm -hmm. but it's not, um, it's not putting them in a dangerous situation either. Yeah. Um, Cause I know in the past, the kids in past years, they said that that didn't occur for them. Their previous strength coach did not adjust the schedule like that. Uh -huh. And, and you know, they, they talk about the days where they had to come in and squat 90% immediately after doing one of those lactate workouts. Mm -hmm. And they never, they, it was never with, um, it was never fondly remembered on. Yeah. So I do think that not only did the coach appreciate it, but I think the kids appreciated it as well. Um, they felt like, okay, this is, somebody that listens is somebody that kind of cares about us so mm -hmm. you know what I'll say with that is even if it's something where you know maybe you don't feel strongly about it uh, um, you're kind of flexible one way or another because we all have those things like that where we can kind of go either way um, if your sport coach has a pretty strong preference um, I would just say go with it because I think it's just easier to maintain a good relationship with them. It shows them that you care and that you want to work with them. And oftentimes it's for a reason and the kids will notice that as well. And if they know that you and that sport coach are on the same page and you're working together, um, I think it just kind of helps with the buy-in uh, aspect of your program. They're getting the same message out at practice, whether it's the track or the field um, that they do get when they, when they come into the weight room as well. Um, so the coach is, uh, um, definitely an important factor in that. And then the last point I'll say is, um, as far as differences, I think you got to look at the kids themselves, not just the sport they play or even the position for that matter, which can be a factor. Um, I think you got to look at their training background, their training history, um, their personality, um, and their maturity level, I think is a really important thing to consider when you're designing a training program. And that's something early in my career I never considered. Um, but with a lot of the stuff out there right now with whether it's the velocity-based training or a lot of these auto-regulated type programs that are um, becoming more popular and for good reason, they're very effective. Do, are your kids mature enough to execute those programs the way they're intended yeah. to be executed? I think that's something you got to consider. So are you, uh, are you familiar with the APRE, Will? Somewhat. Yeah. So, uh, you know, long story short, and it's, uh, it was repopularized. It wasn't created, but it was repopularized by Dr. Brian Mann. Um, the ebook is pretty easy to find, um, but a lot of it's auto-regulation. So the, it's a, it's a strength-based program. Um, the loads are often determined by the performance of the athlete, how many reps they get um, on a certain set, you know, looking at charts to then determine how much weight to add, sometimes how much weight to take off, or sometimes, you know, we keep the load the same based on their performance on a given day. And it works really, really well. It's one of the most effective programs I've ever used, but you have to be in a situation where you trust your athletes to implement it. Um, you're, you can't watch everybody's set, so you have to teach them and empower them to make the right decisions based on their performance that day. And I think the average person 
will follow a program like that the way it's intended. But of course we have our outliers. You have very immature people that, you know, I don't have a better term to describe it other than they're sandbaggers and yep. they're not going to push to a point where they get to add weight. You know, they will always, Oh, they'll just go to the reps where it's like, Oh, the card told me to stay the same coach. So I'm just going to keep the weight the same, even though they could have pushed for maybe three or four reps, which would have told them to go up. So you have those people and then you have those other people and bless them. You know, they, they, they want to push, they want to get stronger and better every day. So they're, you know, they'll probably push themselves to failure way too often and they will fight for that last rep and you know, you'll have big technical breakdown and you know, you get people that despite any type of coaching or counseling on your part, they're always going to take themselves to that real, real red line every single time they follow a program like that. And so that's something to consider as well. You know, if you have a group that you really trust and they trust you and they're bought in and the majority of them are going to do how do the program, how you're instructing, those programs are great to roll with. But if you're just starting out with a team and you're kind of feeling things out and you're worried that, you know, you have more individuals that go one way, like I first described or the other way, those programs may not be appropriate for them. Um, and so that's something to consider as well as some of those social aspects um, yeah. and actually paying attention to the kids themselves and what they bring to the table. Um, yeah. It's obviously, it's no part of their physical profile that you're considering. Um, it, it truly is the social aspect and the personal aspect of it yeah. that you have to look at. Yeah. Um, speaking on that, so you talk about uh, you are a big believer in the Olympic lifting, um, the variations of all the Olympic lifts. So when you're assessing a kid, how do you determine if someone's ready to clean from the floor? How, um, if they're ready to snatch from the floor, where do they start? Do you start them with just the bar? Do you start them with uh, just plates on? Like, how do, you, how do you assess a kid regarding their maturity to add weight on the Olympic lifts and progress with the Olympic lifts? Um, I generally, my big thing is there is a, there is a skill component to the Olympic lifts, um, even though they are not Olympic weightlifters. Um, an argument that drives me nuts is when coaches try to say, well, we're not, we're not weightlifters, we're athletes, as if it's some type of reason for not um, teaching it to having a higher level of technical yeah. proficiency. Um, but having said that, there is a skill component to it, and you do need to pay attention to that. And I think to get benefits from that category of exercises, it does need to be done to a certain level of quality, um, or you're just not going to get the benefits from it. Again, you don't have to be ready for Tokyo, well, 2021 now. It's not 2020 anymore. But, you know, I'm going to quote Mike Boyle in that, um, you know, generally, you know, you know a good one when you see it, and it is important. Um, but having said that, I, if, if it's that important, you do kind of need to start your kids from day one. I don't think it's a category of movement that you're waiting until somebody's a sophomore or a junior before you start teaching them that movement. Um, I think that was something that maybe 20 years ago was more the, the norm. Oh, you know, we have to build a good base of strength and they need to squat double their body weight before we can teach them to clean. Um, but I'm going to keep it really, really simple. I'm not a guy, I'm not putting broomsticks in people's hands. But um, I do have a progression I use that follows like a top-down progression and variations that almost control the loading. So 
Um, I'm a big believer in the muscle variations. So utilizing muscle cleans and muscle snatches. I have two. Um, and I'll start them from power positions. So basically learning to extend and push from that hip crease. And then, and that, that accomplishes a lot of things. A, you're gonna naturally control the load. So even if a kid wants to go heavier, um, they're not gonna be able to. Um, they're limited that way due to the position, the nature of the exercise. Um, and I think it just simplifies things for them. Um, first, it prioritizes teaching them to get good um, vertical force down into the ground to accelerate the bar. And then more focusing on how we're gonna safely rack and catch the bar, whether it's overhead or on our shoulders. And by taking out the, um, the, the landing piece of it, dropping down in either the half squat or a full squat, um, it simplifies things for them. So, you know, we'll work through those. We'll typically go, you know, we'll do muscle cleans and muscle snatches from power position. Again, kind of more that hip crease pocket position. We'll learn to hinge down to an above the knee position. And once we get really good at those and we can actually do them with a little bit of load, um, I do think you need to load them a little bit to really make sure the athlete understands how to put that force into the ground to accelerate the weight and create that tension. Yeah. Um, then you yeah. can actually move on to teaching them how to land in that more traditional power clean or power snatch landing position. I don't have a set load in mind. Everybody's different. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you have really, really, really strong kids that are muscle snatching 60 kilograms or 135 pounds from above the knee, um, which is actually a pretty impressive level of base strength for oh, yeah. freshman athletes, oh, yeah. typically a thrower or a football player you might see that with. Um, so I'm not going to put an absolute load on that, um, especially because you may have really, really weak female track athletes where, you know, I said I'm not a big fan of the broomstick, but some of them might need the broomstick initially to work from those positions. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that accomplishes everything without you having to overly manipulate and coach things. Um, in order for them to successfully complete the exercise, they're going to have to do it a certain way. Um, in order to kind of, again, control for those maturity levels of wanting to put too much weight on the bar, I think that gets controlled as well. Um, so it just makes things a lot easier to control those parameters. So when you finally do move down to the floor and you're teaching them the full variation of the lift, um, I think there's just a higher quality of learning with it. Um, I'm not a big fan of teaching from the ground up or teaching through pulse. Um, I do think you need that feedback of learning to rack the bar on your shoulders or learning to turn it over and fix it overhead with nice tight arms. And I think if you start with the muscle variations, you just get so many more reps of that before you even actually do uh, a power clean. Um, so that would, that would be my recommendation. I don't yeah. see the muscle variations used very, very often. Um, but anybody that's kind of where that might be new to them, I really encourage you to look into that because I think um, it really was a game changer for me yeah. when I started to incorporate that into my teaching progressions. So good for teaching bar path too, yeah. just getting a oh, lot yeah. of reps, a lot of reps, a lot of reps without fatiguing the kids. So yeah, I'm, exactly. a, I'm a big believer in teaching muscle snatch, muscle clean right away. Um, yeah. And uh, so with, with a, a track team, you probably have what, 70, 70, 80, 90 kids that you're working with. Yeah. Too many. So, yeah. So you have, so you have a wide variety of talents of training ages coming in. Um, what I, I don't work with track and field, but what I've noticed, um, with the track and field kids at North Dakota is typically they enjoy training and they're typically, um, 
the type of kids that want to come in and they're bought in. Is that the same experience that you've seen with your kids that they're typically, they're hard workers. They like to train. They know it's important for their sport. So they're pretty, pretty good to work yeah. with overall. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the nature of track and field is, you know, a lot of these kids, there is a certain amount of self-sufficiency that they have, even when they're at their sport practice. Um, because they're, they're, again, there's only one coach, there's only one event coach, and they're obviously gonna help serve them and coach them and educate them. But a lot of times that coach can't be everywhere at once, just like the weight room. And so for a kid to be successful, they have to know how to take a program on paper and follow it and follow it to the letter with the effort and the intensity that is required. Um, and obviously, you know, nobody's perfect. And obviously there's sometimes um, issues one way or the other, like I've talked about, where you may have somebody that sandbags a little more, you may have somebody that pushes a little too hard. But I've actually found that track and field athletes are very good at following a program as it's laid out for them. Yeah, that's the even more so team sport athletes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for them to, and they, they came to, they got to college for a reason. And obviously a lot of that is due to their talent level, but a lot of that is due to their maturity level and their ability to do that. Yeah. Um, so I would agree with that. I um, have seen that in the weight room here and we're obviously a very, we're a pretty high level program here at Colorado state. Um, our men, uh, won the we obviously our season was cut short but we were still able to um have an indoor conference meet and our men on the we won on the men's side by quite a large margin um the women did not this time around but last year in uh, 2019 both the men and the women swept the indoor and the outdoor titles oh, um which is pretty oh, amazing yeah. so they're, you know and they have a very good history in the mountain west conference um you know typically they're if they're not winning, they're typically in the top three every year. They have a really strong culture. Um, and so they have, a, they're, you know, they're pretty well regarded in the state um, and in the Western part of the country in track and field. So they get pretty good kids based on that. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the rich get richer type thing. If you have success, if you have kids that are getting the marks, the kids want to come there. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the best advertisement you can have. Um, so based on that alone, the kids wanting success that helps motivate them. Um, so generally the effort is pretty good. Now, is everybody perfect? No. Every once in a while I do have to coach effort every once in a while I do um, have to confront a kid that isn't completing the program the way it's intended and not to knock other teams sports. But what I'll say is I find that way more common in team sports and, you know, not to rag too much um, on our gender, but it seems to be more common with male team sport yeah, athletes. Absolutely. And I'm sure <laughs> as, a, as a football player, and if I'm not mistaken, you work with men's basketball at North Correct. Dakota. Correct. Yep. And, and, you know, we got we to gotta be careful here. We don't want to bash anybody too much, but mm -hmm. that seems to be a more common experience um, with that population. And yep. so I don't have to do that too much. What I generally do have to do with track and field is more so I have to, I generally have to pull people back a little more sometimes since we have motivated kids and we do have kids that focus on the numbers since track and field is a sport where they're trying to get a certain mark to go to regional meets or national meets, or we have, I have a lot of kids that are talking about, they want to go to the Olympics and you know, they were talking about 2020. Now they're talking about 2021. So we do have people that 
have an Olympic dream here, um, which is kind of new for me. Previous track programs I worked with, kids wouldn't talk like that. So that also lets me know I'm working with a higher level program. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes with those kids, they also feel like, well, if I got to hit this mark, I have to lift this much. You know, I, I'm on Instagram. I saw this kid cleaning 160 kilos. I'm talking about a thrower right now. Um, I got to do it. I, I, you know, I want to do it for a double just to show him, you know, mm -hmm. so you, you got, sometimes you got to pull kids back a little bit. And it's funny as strength coaches, how sometimes, you know, our job is to get kids stronger, um, to get them more explosive, to get them better that way. And sometimes you feel silly having to tell kids that you got to take weight off the bar. But yeah. what they don't understand is it's not just the quantity of it. It's not how much, it's how you do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and great, if you can lift that much with perfect technique, I'm going to green light you all day. But the moment I see something I don't like, you know, we're going we're gonna to pull back on that. Yeah. Um, and luckily the coaches here are very supportive of that. Um, in the past with track and field, I've had coaches that were just all about the numbers and they didn't care what it looked like as long as it got on our shoulders or over our head, we were happy. And that's more common in the throws, but I've seen it happen in sprint and jump groups as well. But here, you know, they're really bought into doing things the right way. They want the kids to lift with good technique and good form. They want things done with a full range of motion. So fortunately that makes my job a lot easier. So even though I do have to work to kind of hold kids back, it's not as much of an uphill battle because I know at the end of the day, I have the support of the coaches. And if it really becomes an issue, you know, they're at lifts too. Um, all my track coaches come to all the lifts and, you know, if I'm saying something, they'll typically step up and kind of talk to the kid afterwards too. And we get things back on the right track. Yeah. What's so cool about track and field too, is that if an athlete wants to know if they're doing better, they just look at their numbers. If they're throwing farther, running faster, yeah. jumping higher. So then as a strength and conditioning coach, how do you assess if you're doing your job uh, effectively? Do you look at their numbers on the track and on the field, or do you look at their weight room numbers and seeing if they're lifting better? How do you really assess um, your performance as a coach? I mean, I think you just nailed it on the head with track and field. We have a stopwatch, we have tape mm -hmm. measure and we have a, a bar height. And that's, you know, that's number one um, because at the end of the day, obviously a lot of these things have associative benefits that are proven by different research studies as to being helpful and beneficial for performance. So there's research showing that absolute and relative strength helps with power performance. Um, for example, there's studies that show that ability in the Olympic lifts can help with vertical jumping or sprinting speed or other power type performances. But at the end of the day, um, it's the results that matter in the sport. Yeah. So, you know, it's an unfortunate thing because I think we all have athletes that come to mind that we would describe as workout warriors or weight room warriors. They will yeah. run through a wall for yeah. you. They will do everything you ask. Um, they're even very good in the weight room in terms of their numbers. They can squat the house. They can clean the house. Um, they're typically in really good shape as well, but it just doesn't always transfer. It's never ever a perfect one-to-one -one, um, association with that, unfortunately. Now, I think it's still important to work on it, but at the end of the day, it's about the results. Are they getting on the podium? Are they PRing? Are they improving? Um, and sometimes that's a good indicator that you may have somebody that, that is strong enough, and then you need to look at other avenues and other ways to train them to bring about those improved performances. Now, what I'll 
say is I think the threshold for that isn't as close as some people think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had athletes that really aren't anywhere near what I would consider strong enough or even, and coaches that think they're strong enough. And I still think they've, they've got a ways to go and they, yeah. they can still have more growth in that area where they'll be quick to pull the plug and want to try other things. And then again, that's where you're kind of trying to tap into those relationships you hopefully, you hopefully previously built with them. But at the end of the day, you also have to be prepared to maybe compromise some stuff. And, you know, I've gotten pretty good at that with track and field. And that is something that happens more commonly in track and field than other team sports I've found is that expectation of changing things on an individual basis for somebody if they're not performing Um, Mm -hmm. versus with a team sport. There's kind of that culture of if the team's doing it, everybody's doing it. Um, And that kind of holds that in check a little more versus track and field since it's a more individual sport. um, There's more, again, expectation to alter things for somebody. But what I'll say is you don't have to completely do a 180 and reinvent the wheel if you actually listen to the wishes of your athlete and your coach, especially the coach, sometimes athletes don't know what they want. They don't know what they know. They just see things on Instagram. Yeah. Um, But you know, it doesn't mean you have to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you make some, you might just need to make some small tweaks. So I'll give you an example. I had a high jumper that, you know, he felt like he was really responding to some early GPP work we were doing in the fall. Um, again, I don't do a lot of conditioning with track and field, but there was some stuff that I took from Cal Dietz, not his uh, above 80% triphasic training, but more of his stuff that he does for building um, a good aerobic base, yeah. quote unquote. So yeah. some of those uh, five minute EDT circuits, uh, some of those kind of giant almost bodybuilding, quote unquote, super endurance circuits, um, the contralateral work, um, for example, we did incorporate that for about two weeks initially. Um, to kind of build a base with the kids. I like the um, contralateral stuff. Yeah. And I wasn't in a big rush to put weight on them anyway. I was just starting with the kids. Um, so I thought it was kind of easier to start with some of, some of this stuff to start from a work capacity situation and kind of then we can add load from there. But just off that work, that high jumper felt like he was jumping better than he ever had, which is kind of counterintuitive to me because we weren't doing anything to focus on power or elasticity um or even strength for that matter um so but he kind of came to me in the spring and just i you know i just i feel heavy i don't feel like i have any pop right now and so we did we made a compromise you know i still wanted him to perform our olympic lift variation that day i still wanted him to do our strength variation that day but then rather than moving on to our traditional accessory work that we may have done that day you know he was able to do a shorter modified version of one of those circuits um, and right, wrong, or otherwise um, he, you know, he, he felt better and, you know, his marks slowly started to improve. He never got exactly where he wanted to. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, that switch potentially helped him. Now, the other thing to consider is from a physiological standpoint or a physical standpoint, it may have not been the right thing to do to introduce some GPP work in season in place of some traditional strength training. But I think that psychological piece is something that um, I've learned to pay attention to a little bit more as a strength coach. Um, And, you know, it's kind of a placebo effect. If somebody believes in a training they're doing, if they really believe that it's going to make them better, it tends to be more beneficial than even 
say the greatest protocol you've ever written, totally scientifically sound, all researched, perfectly laid out, perfectly periodized. If they don't believe it and they don't buy into it, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And whether or not it's something within their is whether it's a physiological thing that fights it due to that mentality. I don't know. This is where the human body gets really complicated, but it might also just be from that lack of buy-in that necessary effort to get the benefit is never put forth. Yeah. So, so that's where, again, mm-hmm. yeah. And there, that, and that's why with track and field, it's the marks. The marks mm-hmm. are the most important thing. Um, I still think it's important to do some testing to help guide your loading. So we will perform some type of one RM testing or rep testing. Again, that's dependent on the coach's preferences. Um, I've done it both ways and both are reliable enough for me to use to set training loads. Um, I do like, like to test the vertical jump. I think it's a great general indicator of overall lower body power. Um, it does seem like athletes that have a slight, have a higher vertical jump tend to be better in their sport. Um, our national qualifier in the shot put on the women's side, she has a 27 inch vertical jump. That's really good for a female. Athlete. Yeah. And she's not, she's not, she's not a large athlete, but she's not a small athlete either. And so for somebody of her size carrying the muscle mass that she does to jump that high, that generally means she's got a pretty strong base to propel some implements from. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something, it is something to pay attention to, but sometimes you get those kids where I've had male athletes that jump less than that and still have qualified for at least regional meets and been threats to go to national meets and they were more successful because of their technical prowess so they may have not had the juice to really get the implement out there but they hit their positions perfectly to use every single ounce of strength and power they had so even tests like that aren't perfect um i'll quote kind of i'll quote alver meal you know because He's been in the game. Do you, do you know who Alvar Meal is? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know all strength coaches do, and he's been in the game forever. He's been, you know, he's got Super Bowl rings, he's got NBA championship rings. Um, he was in Major League Baseball. Um, he has been an influence to a lot of strength coaches. He's kind of one of the, you know, the, the fathers of the profession. And at the end of the day, even he'll say, "Can they play?" You know, there, there's just there's an aspect of just having it that some kids have that some kids do not. Um, going back to my national qualifier in the shot put, um, unfortunately she kind of ran into some injury problems. She got a little dinged up this year, um, had issues with her elbow, um, which is not good for a shot putter, obviously. And she had issues with her back. And there was a time there where she was not able to do any significant training. She did not have a heavy barbell in her hands from November to the middle of February. And despite that, she still qualified for nationals. She threw a couple inches from her all time PR in the shot put. Um, it was amazing. Despite not having trained with the level of load that you would hope you'd want somebody at that level to train with, she was still successful. And there's a certain just it factor that she has. Um, the throw came on her very last throw. It was, this is do or die. I'm not in nationals right now. I'm in second right now in the conference. I've got to do something big. And a lot of people melt under that pressure. A lot of people don't make it happen. Um, 
she, she was able to go out there and execute. And it was amazing to see. And some people, regardless of what they do in the weight room, what they do um, in their training, they'll still be successful. Now, I don't want to sound nihilistic about it because I do think that we matter and what we do matters. But I also think we have to be humble enough to understand that at the end of the day, I think your best tool for strength and conditioning is recruiting. Um, and obviously, you got to do the best with the kids that come in, and you still need to write sound, safe, periodized programs. But again, it, you know, you don't want to burn the stake. Right. I'd rather kind of undertrain a kid. And in her situation, we had to be really cautious with everything. And I could have been more aggressive. I could have pushed things a little bit harder. But I, you know, I talked to her and I talked to coach and I said, you know what, I'd rather just not, I'd rather not overcook this. Um, despite your not having ideal training, you have the ability to win the conference. So let's make sure you're actually healthy enough to get there. Um, and luckily, she really exceeded everybody's expectations still. And that only happened because I was very intentionally conservative. Um, I didn't push her. I didn't force her to continue to bench press heavy. I didn't yeah. continue to put a heavy bar on her back and make her squat. We still found ways to keep training, but it just wasn't near at the volume and the intensity that I did with the rest of the group. So I think that's a really important lesson for strength coaches. We have to we have to kind of check our ego at the doors and be humble. And we have to, we have to learn at the end of the day, the kids have to be healthy enough to perform. Yeah. You know, the best ability is availability. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, well, we're starting to wrap up a little bit on time here, Adam. One last question I'd like to get your thoughts on is over the course of your career. So you've been doing this um, for quite some time now. Is there anything that you've done in the past that you look back on and just have totally changed your mind on? Or is there anything that you um, previously thought was kind of a waste of time? I'm never doing that. And then now you're implementing it with your athletes that you've just changed your mind completely on. Yeah. Um, I think hopefully what I kind of conveyed and some of what I was talking about before is just being willing to be flexible, being willing to compromise, um, being willing to be creative. Uh, and think outside the box. And just because something doesn't fit a certain model of how you think things should go or how your, how your textbook or how this strength coach said at this talk, um, you have to sometimes be willing to disregard that and do what's best for the athlete. And you have to take all those factors um, into consideration. So along those lines, um, I've learned to very rarely do I make any absolute statements anymore I never say you have to do this exercise to be successful or we have to train this certain way to be successful obviously you have to you know we have to follow basic scientific principles obviously the you know progressive overload mm -hmm. um the there's you know the principle specificity things like that those generally if we follow them we're going to help people get better but the methods that we use um I caution people to be absolute in those mm -hmm. and again early in my career I thought if you weren't back squatting the house if you weren't heavy deadlifting if you weren't heavy doing heavy full Olympic lift variations you're you weren't going to be successful you you know if you couldn't do it you suck that yeah. you know I used, to, I used to I used to think that way um and obviously just getting older and looking into more resources um 
has kind of changed my mind on a few things. But even then, some of those other resources, I don't think they're 100% right either. So you have to take all the tools that are out there and make them work for you. Um, I'd recommend for a lot of young coaches, I think it's important to follow some blueprints, to follow previously established methods, the way they are written. But as you get older, I think it's okay to make adjustments and pick and choose things because you kind of have a better understanding of how that's going to fit your overall training plan. Um, again, this is another great analogy from Mike Boyle where, you know, we talk about young coaches in the first couple of years, well, you need to act like a cook. You need to follow recipes um, and not really deviate from them very much because then you need to see how they work. You need to see what the end product looks like, what the dish tastes like, you know, but as you get older, then you can act more like a chef and chefs kind of understand different um, things related to flavor, whether it's just how, how acidic something is and how that's going to affect this ingredient. You start to get those understandings when you're an older coach and then you can kind of play around a little bit more. Um, so, and that's what I've gotten better with agent. And some, again, some of that was through my own research and some of that was just due to the situation that presented itself. You know, you can be a really big believer in a heavy bilateral back squat or front squat and think that is the um, gold standard for generating and creating lower body strength. But then what happens when you get that kid that can't squat? Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, and you get some kids that try to get out of things and they try to hide in the training room and this, that, and the other. Um, but sometimes you get kids that just for whatever reason, whether it's an anatomical issue or a past injury that they had in high school um, or earlier in their collegiate career before you got your hands on them, what are you going to do if they can't squat? So right. you have to, you have to be able to be creative and let go of that. You have to mentally be able to move on from that and still find a way and help and serve that kid. Um, I had a thrower that was in that situation, could not, he couldn't even quarter squat. It, it would cause so much pain in his knees. Um, so we gave him kind of a, a, a superhero um, mantra, or, or, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? I kind of gave him a superhero name. His name was Captain Deadlift. Um, he was, he was able to do that without pain. It was still a bilateral exercise. Both feet were on the ground. There was still a great stimulus for him. It still trained him pretty much from his shoulders down to his ankles. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't quad dominant, but it wasn't quad absent. So we still found a way to provide a stimulus and a load for him that helped him get stronger and more explosive. And we were able to get him through through that year and luckily he was able to qualify for a regional meet and he still has had a successful career he set our school record in the hammer throw and he, again he's still he's he did some really good things and am i saying it's because oh it's because we deadlifted no i'm saying it's we i didn't fit a square peg in a round hole and it wasn't all because of me but i at least did my part to keep him healthy enough to do what he absolutely needed to do and that was his sport so to kind of backtrack a little, if there's any absolute I believe in, it's the kids absolutely have to practice and train their sport. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything you can do to help support that or make sure that they can do that at a high level, you need to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be kind of, that would be number one for me is just yeah. having absolutely no, having absolutely no absolutes, being flexible, making adjustments, learning as many different training styles variations as you can because you never know when you're going to have to employ them um you know the next thing i'll say too 
is the other thing I've kind of learned, and this is becoming a little more in the forefront, maybe not necessarily in the collegiate strength and conditioning community, but I've noticed it's becoming more popular in the internet, powerlifting, weightlifting type community, if that makes sense. Um, kind of the, uh, the, role of, the role of pain science. Um, I don't know if you've looked much into that, but I used to think that all pain was purely mechanically based. So if an athlete was experiencing pain, that was directly correlated to maybe damage in the, the tissue or the area where they were feeling pain. Um, and it seems like a lot of things are coming to light. And I think the science has been around for years, but now people with some knowledge in strength and conditioning and knowledge in the medical world are kind of getting their hands on it. And they're starting to present that and disseminate that for the rest of us meathead dummy strength coaches. Um, there's a lot more to medicine guys really put out a lot of good content on that stuff. Yeah. And that's who I'm, that's what I'm alluding to. Um, and we still have to be careful with it, but you know, what they get on is they, they like to use the term, uh, the biopsychosocial model of pain. And so there's obviously a mechanical input to pain, but again, those psychological, those individual aspects, how that athlete interprets pain, how they respond to it, their experience of it, um, is a factor and the social aspect of it. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes the kids don't know it or sometimes coaches don't know it, but sometimes they can be their own kind of worst enemy when we're talking about pain and injury and relating it to certain exercises like, Oh, like that's what, you know, this is bad for your knees. Like, Oh, if you lift this way, you're going to hurt yourself. And you know, that can also, that type of language and behavior can also factor in now. You got to be careful with that. I think there's some people that take that information and say, oh, it's all in your head. Pain is all in your head. Um, you got to be careful with that because I've seen strength coaches try to utilize that well-intendedly. They're, they're counseling their athletes. They're trying to explain to them um, some of this stuff. But I think you have to have a really good relationship with an athlete to kind of go down that rabbit hole with them. If somebody doesn't trust you, with some of that stuff, all they're going to hear is, oh, he just thinks it's all in my head. He thinks I'm being insult- He thinks I'm faking or pretending. Yeah. And that's not it. Yeah. At so, you know, what I hope people do if they're listening is to maybe look at that stuff a little bit more, be very cautious with it. Um, but just know that it's, it's, it seems to be a very interesting, more emerging thing in our community. And it's something worth paying attention to because I think it, it gives you the tools to maybe talk with athletic trainers about modifications for exercises. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this where you get the, um, the recommendation from the athletic trainer or the request that no legs today, no right. lower body. Right. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Know this. And so I think if you have a model like that and you understand it, you have a, maybe an avenue to present some information and maybe go back and forth and find out what can we, what can we actually do? What, what are the things we can do versus the things we can't do? And that's just another resource to draw from um, to show your knowledge and your understanding as a coach in a broader context that you're not just some dumb meathead that wants kids to be power lifters. Yeah. Um, so like I said, you, you touched on it. Um, I think barbell medicine is a good place to start with that yeah. um, and look into that information because that's something that really um, was a paradigm shift for me. Um, and it's been really helpful in conversations I've had with athletes and coaches and even my peers, um, some of my staff members at CSU. Um, I think it's been very helpful to get people to be less fragile 
um, to trust their bodies a little bit more to know that they can work through some things and, you know, they're not going to spontaneously combust um, or die <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're, they, they put a bar on their back or, right. you know, they, um, they slightly round in their spine on one deadlift rep. Um, yeah. I think that's really good stuff to look into. Yeah. I think it's an important message to give to the kids too, that they just, they come into the weight room thinking the weight room's dangerous. They're going to get hurt. And now they have this self-fulfilling prophecy that, oh, if I put a bar on my back, I'm going to get hurt two weeks later. Now they actually have gotten hurt because they've just talked themselves into thinking it so much. So I think it's a yeah. big message to send, give a give to the athletes as well. So just, they understand that uh, anyways, you, you can put it better, a lot better than I can that um, weight room's not going to be a dangerous, dangerous place for you. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and again, there's that social aspect of it. Um, you may need to kind of earn their trust. If there's somebody that's never lifted before, or they had a previous bad experience. Um, mm. Even if your program is sound and you're teaching perfect technique, you know, those types of athletes with that types of attitudes can be more susceptible to those types of situations. Yeah. Um, and what you were just describing, you know, they start to catastrophize. So yep. they start to feel a little something that causes them to kind of panic. It, it, it causes them to kind of go down the rabbit hole and spiral in their thoughts. Um, and before you know it, 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 it feels even worse. Now, the, the thing that people got to be careful of is that's a real experience. You know what I mean? Like they are feeling that pain. Um, again, what you got to teach them is it's not potentially all related to a mechanical issue. You know, mm. you have to give them the tools to feel confident and self-efficacious about it as well. And you, you may need to slowly bring them back along and you may need to take a step back in whatever exercise they're doing and slowly reintroduce that exercise over time. And again, not from a physical standpoint, but just from the, a mental standpoint, just having them be able to trust themselves and to trust the exercise again mm -hmm. um, and to give it to them in small doses. And before they know it, they're even, they're doing it again and they don't feel pain. And, you know, I think that's the biggest thing. If, if they don't feel pain, most athletes are going to, they'll run through the wall for you. Yep. And if you're able to counsel them and get them to feel confident, and believe themselves. And that helps sort of take, get rid of that pain experience or reduce it. Um, like I said, I think they're, you know, you, you'll have a meeting out of the palm of your hand, you know, you Absolutely. will, unless you, unless you mess it up drastically doing something else, like they're going to trust you the rest of their career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Adam, I appreciate you having, uh, taking some time out of your day to do this with me. Um, learn a lot from you, um, provide a lot of good insight. So um, before we kind of wrap this up, where could people who are listening find you on uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter? Um, where can they find you? Okay. Yeah, I, I have social media. I, um, I play around a little bit more on Instagram now. Uh, my handle is uh, Coach Parsons1515, um, all in word. It's the same handle on Twitter. Um, Twitter's a little more political for me now, so I don't, uh, I don't, I don't mess around on that so much. So you know, I'm, I'm living my best life on Instagram a little bit more. So if anybody wants to connect, uh, feel free to feel free to give me a follow. Um, I'll post, I'll post it all in the discussion uh, below on the on YouTube as well. So if people sure. people want to find you, they can. But yeah, Adam, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I had fun talking to you. 
Um, and I wish you the best of luck in the future with all of, uh, your teams that you're working with, wherever you might land in the future. So appreciate you taking the time to be on here. Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, pretty happy in the Fort Collins area right now. Admittedly, my wife makes a lot more money than I do. (laughs) So (laughs) if we move again, it probably will not be for another strength coaching job. But Mm. again, I was ready to leave the profession for my wife, for family. So the fact that I'm still coaching and I have the opportunity to do it here at Colorado State. And if he listens to this, um, I really want to thank Jason Phillips for the opportunity. You know, he's the one that um, gave me the call and, you know, let me know about the opportunity, encouraged me to apply. Um, the other person I want to thank is uh, Nathan Moe, who was my, uh, my boss and my, my mentor for almost seven years at South Dakota State. You know, I wouldn't be the coach I am today without him. Um, and then the last person I want to acknowledge, though he's no longer with us, is uh, David Lang. He was the director of strength and conditioning at Washington State. Um, but a few years ago, he unfortunately passed away from uh, some cardiac issues. Um, he had a uh, what was kind of known as the Widowmaker, went undiagnosed and unfortunately um, suddenly passed away from that a few years ago. But, but he was really the very first guy to get me into this profession. In 2009, he um, let me come down to Washington State to do an internship. He did way more paperwork than he had to for any other intern because there was all the visa stuff and the immigration stuff. And he wasn't even paying me. Um, and he did all that for me and he gave me an opportunity. I wouldn't be here today without him. So I just wanted to kind of acknowledge him and give him a shout out. Um, though he's no longer uh, with us, he's a big part of this. Awesome. Well, appreciate it, Adam. Um, take care, man. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks, Will.